So this evening I'd like to continue the reflection on the Brahma-viharas and speak more about equanimity. If metta is learning the art of standing beside or standing near to all things with boundless friendliness, Compassion is the ability to turn towards all things, all people, all sorrows um, present in this life with a heart that can tremble and respond with the unshakable commitment to, to help, to heal, to relieve suffering. Joy is needed to soften the raw and painful edges of the distress we meet in this life. Joy is needed to replenish and to restore the heart. And equanimity is understanding really what it means to stand in the midst of all experience with unshakable balance. The word in Pali is upeka. Equanimity is translated in a range of different ways sometimes as being equally near all things, times translated as to see with patience, times it's translated as to look over, to be a guardian of, and also to stand in the midst of all of this with boundless poise and balance. Now, equanimity, like all of the qualities we've spoken of, is very much a moment-to-moment cultivation that runs through all of the teaching and the practice. It's one of the paramis, or what are called the, the perfections of the heart, an essential thread in the fabric of compassion. Equanimity is also one of the concentration absorption states, And it's said to be the fruit of insight, the fruition of insight that protects our mind from the extremes of our reactions to life, to events that we can't control and yet that so easily leave us feeling bewildered and confused. Equanimity is said to be the quality of understanding that really frees us to step off the wheel of being endlessly lost in the world that is constructed moment to moment. In its deepest sense, equanimity is a quality in a word that in the discourses is used interchangeably with nibbana, with liberation the blowing out of the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. And it's said to be the crown, in a way, the crown of all of the other Brahma-Baharas, a crown of, of metta, the crown of joy, the crown of compassion. And I want to return to a quote that I used the other night that illustrates that, that love gives to equanimity its boundless nature, Compassion guards equanimity from falling into indifference. Equanimity gives selflessness to love, gives patience, courage, and fearlessness to compassion. Equanimity guards joy from sentimentality, 
It brings all of the four noble qualities of the heart together in freedom. Now, I would like to just explore what our understanding is of equanimity, of unshakable poise, what it means in our life, in a world where we seem to be so easily knocked off balance, in this fragile, in this uncertain, in this vulnerable life. How does equanimity protect the heart? How does equanimity bring suffering and distress to an end and lead to freedom? There's a simple truth that applies to all of us, that in the midst of the 10,000 joys and sorrows, part of all of our lives, the events we experience, the changes, the conditions that make up each of our day and life, that there is, in truth, very little in this life we can control. No matter how heroically we strive to do so. None of us can choose to have only lovely people, only delightful experiences, only endless health and well-being. Certainly none of us can choose immortality. Every day our sense doors are flooded with sights and sounds, sensations, thoughts, feelings. You know what? We are already standing in the middle of all of this. But what equanimity teaches us is how to stand in the midst of this uncertain and uncontrollable world with a heart that cannot be shattered. It teaches us to cultivate a heart and a mind of boundless stability in the midst of the unstable. To be responsive, to be present, to be awake, but not to drown. I want to look at some of the different dimensions that I feel equanimity really applies to. And the first dimension of equanimity is actually the relationship that we have to the river of events and experiences that make up every human life. The second dimension, I think, is the domain of human relationship. Those we love, those we fear and dislike, and those that we feel indifferent towards. And the third dimension of equanimity is liberation, what the Buddha called the signless deliverance of the mind, the cessation of all greed, hatred, and delusion, the awakened heart. So we start with the question, where do we practice equanimity? not in the calmest moments of our lives. We practice equanimity in the moments where there is no equanimity. In the most turbulent moments, the moments we feel most agitated, most shattered, most lost, most imbalanced, most resisting, these are the moments that equanimity is cultivated. In the, not only in the, in the events of the world, but in our reactions to them. 
because it is in those reactions to the events of the world that we feel most imprisoned and most helpless. Equanimity, like all of the other Brahman Viharas we've spoken about, is not describing a state again. It is always relational. It is a practice of insight, and it's a commitment of the heart to freedom. So, this first dimension of events and experience. The winds of praise and blame, of success and failure, of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, blow through each of our lives. None of us are exempt. Praise, success, pleasure, gain, of course, we delight in. Often we grasp hold of them. Blame, failure, pain, loss, we fear them and we resist them and we become agitated. And we see the ways that our mind swings between highs and lows, elation and despair, excitement and boredom, fear and hope. And and it's not so difficult to see the way not only the winds of events blow into our lives, but indeed the wind of agitation. And when we look actually at how much energy and dedication we can bring on a daily level to endeavor to rearrange the conditions of our lives, it is no wonder we get so tired. Some of you have even spoken about it here on retreat, you know, even with the sitting posture, you know, that idea that if I just find the right cushion, (laughs) everything's going to go fine. (laughs) You know, even on that level, and the agitation of it, We do it, we do that rearrangement often so that we have only pleasure and praise and gain and success. And we see actually how much energy and dedication we bring to avoiding pain and blame and failure and loss. And it, that, that kind of movement to try to get, the movement to try to get rid of, of course, leaves us living in a state of anxiety and agitation because actually we are living with the ideology that the well-being of our hearts and our happiness is dependent upon the world of events and conditions. And the teaching of this path has always been to suggest actually that the source of joy and sorrow lies in our hearts and not in the world of conditions and events. It's a small quote, it says, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, success and failure are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, So the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the events on this earth. That doesn't mean indifferent. It means not shattered. 
Now, we may or may not have people who love us. We probably have those who don't like us. We may receive praise. We will surely receive blame. At times, life does work out the way we want it to, and we have a measure of success. And we surely all have our rations of disappointment, the moments that don't work out the way we think they should. People around us are not always the people we think they should be. Events arise that we don't want. We say it shouldn't be happening. We are not always the person we think we should be. Not the kind, the generous, the endlessly forgiving person. The word should articulates this sense of disappointment, of failure, Strangely, and I find this quite poignant, actually, in our times, how strangely it becomes apparent that we think, think that the first noble truth shouldn't be part of our lives. We think we should be exempt. Isn't that astonishing? We live in a world where 140 million people are diagnosed with depression. We live in a world where there's a failure of capitalism and people's lives crumble. And there's this incredible sense of disappointment, you know, like the first noble truth shouldn't have been part of our lives. I think what we're seeing is an epidemic of disappointment as people actually wake up to the reality, yeah, you know what, we're not exempt from the first noble truth. When we can't control the world, and in reality there is so much in life we simply cannot control, we feel almost like the tendency is to be out of control. We flounder, we feel helpless. But think of it truly. We couldn't demand that the sun would shine today. We couldn't insist that we would only hear birds and not the garbage truck. We live in the illusion that we should be able to control the endlessly changing conditions in this life, and it's a great burden. And in the moments when we discover we can't, when that illusion is shattered, how often our hearts too are shattered. Equanimity is not indifference. It's certainly the willingness to be deeply, deeply touched with metta, with compassion by the events of this life. Sadness and joy, we are not invulnerable to them. But it is and it is so important that we are deeply touched. But we can also learn to stand in the middle of all of this. I think as an insight practice, equanimity is the knowing clearly and deeply that we do not hold in our hands the power to dictate the way that conditions and events unfold, but that we do hold in our hands the tools and the capacity to respond with balance and compassion, to truly stand in the middle of all of this. Insight, the insight part of equanimity is discerning the difference between the events and the conditions that are unfolding 
and our reactions to them. And to read you a lovely little poem, if I can find it. It's called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. <laughs> he is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra. His head, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton. While the other musicians list in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo. <laughs> that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. Another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. What we can see moment to moment in our experience is that when there is a clinging to events, there is a shaping of self of I in accord with that clinging. Sadness is clung, clung to and I am sad. Disappointment is grasped hold of and shapes a disappointed self. Grasping this clinging, of course, is only an extension, a continuum of craving and aversion. And these are truly the sources of agitation and contraction and suffering. Craving and aversion are truly the conditions of grasping, just as metta and compassion and joy are the conditions of non-grasping. It's that simple. What are we cultivating? What are we feeding? We can learn not only to stand in the midst of all of the events of our lives without being for or against, but we can also learn to stand in the midst of craving and aversion, of wanting and not wanting. Events touch us, but it is the craving and the aversion that knocks us off balance. They are the reactions, and they are the reactions that endow the world of events with the power to shatter our hearts. And we're never short of opportunities to meet craving and aversion with equanimity, to learn to cool those fires. And every moment, in truth, that we're willing to do so, it is a moment of reclaiming our freedom. The second domain of equanimity, I think a very challenging domain, is the domain of human relationship. And this is a domain of our lives probably where we feel the most vulnerable. We see how long, how we long to be connected and how often we feel apart. We don't, it seems, always know how to be wise 
emits both love and hate. We probably all experience the ways in which the anger and the rage of another can pierce our hearts. How we can carry with us the fear of being slighted. We've all experienced the painfulness of the anger and rage and resentment that we can feel for others. The way in which that can just leach joy from our lives and create a cascade of thinking. Fear, injury, condemnation, judgment. So much anxiety that surrounds us. But we see too how much we can think about the injuries of our past and the injuries of our present and how we get knocked off balance by hate, by your will. But you know, love can also knock us off balance. I mean, the great art of a human being is being able to love deeply, to be able to receive love. But we can become infatuated with love. Then we become agitated and excited and protective, trying to pursue it, trying to grasp it, fearing its loss. And then we experience the painfulness of love. In truth, the mind that is lost in hate and the mind that is infatuated with love actually have a real lot in common. They share a common bond in the way that both become preoccupied, even obsessed with the object of their passion. And in both hate and in the infatuation of love, there's a kind of seeding, a a kind of yielding um, of inner sufficiency and autonomy to the object of our passion. And both, in a way, is a way of becoming a prisoner of those passions. Now, equanimity is about balance. It's most deeply concerned with the freedom of our hearts. What we see is that hatred is the most extreme form of aversion, fueled and fired by fear and by thought. And all of us in this life actually will experience the painfulness of feeling disconnected and apart at times. What we see is that both the infatuation with love and with hatred have this strange effect of both separating us and binding us. There is nothing more painful than being abandoned, forsaken by another. But there's nothing more painful either too than abandoning or forsaking ourselves or another. And we see how much this path is that commitment to not forsaking, not abandoning, no matter what, to learn how to be upright in the face of rage, in the face of hatred, in the face of fear, in the face of the infatuation also with love. Martin Luther King Jr. even said, never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of love. Every moment where hatred or aversion or will arises in our hearts, it's almost like we face two roads. And one is the road of 
perpetuating and practicing hatred. And this is a very stony road that actually only has one outcome, one destination, which is, of course, more hatred, more alienation, more separation. We cannot change or transform the heart of another. Only they have dominion over their thoughts, their passions, their emotions. And sometimes in the face of that, all we can do is to find the still whisper of balance in our own hearts and minds where we learn not to give so much credibility and learn not to give so much authority to the thoughts and the words and the acts of ill will from another. They may or may not be telling us anything at all truthful about ourselves. They may be telling us something much more about the torment and the confusion and the fear of another. We can perhaps also learn not to give so much credibility and authority to our own thoughts and emotions of blame and aversion. Are they telling us anything true about another? Or are they speaking about our own sense of injury and woundedness that asks for compassion? And only we can calm our own hearts and explore what it means to develop that inner equilibrium that can turn towards, without fear, those most difficult feelings. We still feel, but we may not feel so shattered. Kuan Yin, one of the representations of of compassion, in one one of the portrayals of Kuan Yin, she's portrayed as holding a willow branch that can bend without being broken, that can bend in the winds of pain, the winds of distress, and yet come back upright. In the Tao, it says, she who is centered in the Tao can go where she wishes without danger. She perceives the universal harmony, even amid great pain, because she has found peace in her heart. Camus said this something differently, saying we all carry within us our own places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to transform them in ourselves. We think a lot about what equanimity means in relationship to ill will. But look at the other side. What does equanimity mean in relationship to love and tender and affection about, towards those most dear to us? Because equanimity is certainly not about coldness or, or indifference. It's about understanding. I once saw a painting of a woman standing on the banks of a river watching in anguish as her child was swept away by the current. And this woman in the painting had no arms. And it's kind of like the stuff of our greatest nightmare, but in some ways it's also the stuff of our lives. And we care, and I think particularly as women, we're asked to care for so many. Children, friends, good and bad times. We're often asked to care for aging parents, And in those relationships of care, there is metta. At times there's joy. There is compassion. 
But there's also such a great need for equanimity because sometimes we are the woman with no arms. We see at times some of those we care for make choices that are harmful to themselves. To engage in acts and ways of being that bring, can bring a waterfall of suffering upon themselves and upon others. We see people that we love simply become ill and die. At times we see people we care for going through at times the despair and the helplessness of aging and of frailty. And we can respond just as wholeheartedly as we can. We can love. Our hearts can quiver and tremble with compassion. And sometimes we do also can feel lost and overwhelmed in despair, in knowing that we just can't fix everything. We can't always heal the pain of another. We certainly can't change the heart of another. And this actually, that knowing is the ground of equanimity. So translation from the Sri Lankan text about equanimity in relationship. Says this life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. I care for you deeply, but you are the parent of your actions and their fruit. And sadly, I cannot protect, I cannot keep you from distress. Sadly, I cannot keep you from distress. What would it mean for us to live that understanding, to care but to know we cannot keep the person we care for from distress? To hear the words, you are the parent of your actions and their consequences, these are not words of blame or condemnation because surely we know just as our own acts and their consequences are born of our own understanding or confusion, just as our acts and their consequences are born of our own meta or ill will, so this is true as of all beings. Just as we know that as much as others may love and care for us, they do not hold the power to heal our sorrow or to change the ways of our heart. This is only in our hands, and we know this. So, too, is this true of another. In the moments when we find ourselves faced with sorrow and pain and those we love in all in the world, we are asked to find, to find the ways to make our home in understanding the way things actually are. It is the first noble truth, again, that none of us will be exempt from our own measure of sorrow at times suffering. This is part of living a life in a world of conditions of change, uncertainty, insecurity. Part of a life which is part of the mandala of the world of conditions. Coming together at times in ways that are deeply challenging and difficult. There is a great comfort in knowing and living in the light of the way things actually are. In truth, the only refuge at times that we can discover is within ourselves, is just finding that small space of stillness within, 
even as our hearts tremble. The space of stillness that enables us to respond to the difficult with all the mindfulness and compassion and wisdom we can, rather than being overwhelmed. In this case, I had a very personal kind of brush with this some months ago when I was teaching a retreat, and in the midst of the retreat, I got the news that my son had been found lying unconscious on the street in a pool of blood after being violently mugged. Well, I did everything that was, you know, I could do to actually take care, you know, that he could get back home and, you know, be taken care of. You know, I'd done every taken care of all of this. And I went to sit the next morning. And I probably looked like I was sitting like a Buddha. And inwardly there was this quiver, you know, this quiver. And I knew, having done all that it was possible to do to take care of the situation, that all that was really now really important for me to do was to find that small, quiet space inwardly that I could rest in. And from that was going to come everything else that needed to come. By the way, this story did have a happy ending. He did actually recover and is fine. Now, the third dimension of equanimity I'd like to touch on is the way that the Buddha uses the word upekha, or equanimity, interchangeably with nibbana, or liberation. The fully awakened heart. There's something that... I'd like to say from this, from the Udana Suttas, in praise of equanimity. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming or going. Where no coming or going is, there is no no arising nor passing away. There is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. I'll go into this more. What the Buddha is describing here is something that is referred to in the discourses as the signless deliverance of the mind, the signless deliverance of the heart, the end of suffering, the path of unshakable wisdom manifested in unshakable metta, joy, compassion, and equanimity. It's looking at our world, looking at the world we inhabit right now, Tagore put it, he said, most people believe the mind is a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them, not realizing, on the contrary, that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. There's a different teacher who put it in these words. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. 
It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. It's, it's, I think it's a very important exploration for us to look at the way that we are the architects of our world. With our perceptions and our thoughts, we construct the world of the moment, and we inhabit those constructions. We live them. We react from their foundations. Moment to moment in our lives, our sense doors are interfacing with the world inwardly and outwardly. Sight, sound, sensations, taste, touch, thought, all registering in consciousness. We perceive them. We have a name for them. The name we have for them through our perceptions is the sign. That is the sign we place upon them. The name that we designate actually sums up their reality. Just as our own name tends to be the standard bearer for all we believe ourselves to be. Wittgenstein once said, Words present us with a picture, and the picture holds us captive. Now, we cannot do without perception. It is what enables us to navigate through life, to drink water out of the glass when we're thirsty, rather than wondering why the bell doesn't deliver, to sit on a chair rather than to try and sit on the Buddha statue, But we see what happens with perception without mindfulness and without insight. That perception begins, first of all, to trigger a world of association. Perception is never neutral. Perception is never bare. Perception is never innocent. Perception never comes to the party alone. So perception triggers a world of association about how we have seen that sight in the past, how we've heard that sound before, what that sound of the bird reminds us of, how we felt that sensation before. Perception and memory are so closely interwoven, interwoven. You go into the dining room and you see the person at the front of the line. They're always the person at the front of the line. (laughs) We sit in the hall and someone comes in late. They're always the person who comes in late. We have a sensation in our back. I remember the last sitting. Perception is drawing on association and making signs for the world, which of course means that we very rarely see anything anew, do we? We see through the lens of the past, freeze-framing the world 
into what we have known. But perception feels not, feeds not only on past association, but the associations in themselves feeding on past experience always feed, also feed upon past interpretations and reactions. So they're drawing those past interpretations and reactions into the present, our likes and our dislikes, our fear and our wanting. Then we only need to sit and hear the sound of a footfall outside and we can feel the waves of judgment and aversion and condemnation arising, saying, I know who's there. The person who always comes late. We feel the sensation in our back. We register it. We remember how much we dreaded that and struggled with it. And we tell ourselves, this sitting is going to be just as bad as the last one. We see a person with eyes similar to our father and cast back into childhood anxieties and difficult emotions, opening the doorway to not only to memory but to judgment and a determination of who we are. With signs, we make a determination of who we are. With signs, we make a determination of who others are. With signs, through perceptions, we make a determination of how the world is. There's very little room in that for anything new to enter. I am, you are, that is. So the process of perception beginning this sign-making process beginning the associations, the feeding and the activating of the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion, delusion. I hope you're getting this. <laughs> it is no surprise that we keep finding ourselves walking in the same closed circles, over and over, reacting and agitated in the same way. Signs are the names, but they're not only the sign making is not only the naming of the world, it is also the whole retinue of associations and reactions and tendencies that keep the world fixed and seen in a particular way. And that keeps us fixed and locked into a sense of self that feels eternal. I am, I always was, I will always be. William Blake once said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is, infinite. If the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is, infinite. So when the Buddha speaks about equanimity, he speaks about the signless deliverance of the heart free from the constructing process of fixing the world, ourselves, and all things into a something, a something that is very finite. The deepening of our practice, the deepening of freedom, is actually a movement towards the infinite, the immeasurable. We can perceive, we can navigate our way through life, 
But what this practice does is to sever the link between perception and the underlying tendencies of greed, hatred and delusion. Blowing out the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. This is actually a remarkable thing because this liberates the world and other people from our definitions of them. This liberates us from our definitions of ourselves. And deepest compassion, actually, is to liberate other people from our perceptions of them. That enables us to see all things anew. This is what enables us to respond with metta, with joy, with compassion. Liberates our own hearts for us to be a fluid, changing, unfolding being, not defined or fixed by any sign. It's equanimity with no signs, creating no self, creating no other. A kind of awakening to the unfolding mandala of life that actually never did have a center. To just end with... And you again this verse from the Odana Sutta in praise of equanimity. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming or going. Where no coming or going is, there is no arising nor passing away. There is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. Have just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.